Chapter 4 of A Man Obsessed by Ellen E. Norse. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 4 Something exploded in Jeff's brain then, something he could no more control than the creeping, vicious hatred of Paul Conroe that had driven him for so long. The jangling, tinny music of the tavern was screaming through his mind the indelible picture of the swerving, gyrating figure, the long raven hair, the impassive face, the full lips. His knees buckled and his head was reeling, but he lurched across the room at the girl. Catching her by the collar, he drew her face up to his with a wrench that knocked the cigarette from her hand and brought her breath out in a gasp. "'All right,' he grated. "'Where is he? Come on, come on, talk. Where is he?' And don't tell me he's not here, because I know he is, understand? I just saw him. I just chased him down below. I know he's here. I want to know where." Her foot came up sharply and caught him in the leg, sending an agony of pain into his thigh. Suddenly she began to fight like a cat, clawing, biting, blue fire in her eyes. Jeff brought his hand up and slapped her face twice hard. With a snarl she caught him in the stomach with her foot and tore herself free, sending him reeling back against the wall. He bounded off, then stopped dead in his tracks. A horrible realization exploded in his mind. She was standing poised, her face twisted, her eyes burning, a stream of poisonous language pouring at him. In her hand was a knife, blade up, balanced in her hand with deadly intent. But Jeff hardly noticed the knife. He didn't hear the words as he stared unbelievably at her face, his heart sinking. Because the face was wrong somehow. The lips were not right, the nose was shaped differently, the glow in the eyes was not right. His panting turned into a bitter sob of disbelief, of incredible disappointment. There couldn't be any doubt, it simply was not the right girl. Where, where is he? he asked weakly, his heart pounding helplessly in his throat. "'Not another step,' the girl snarled. "'Another inch, and I'll slice you up like putty.' "'No, no,' Jeff shook his head, trying desperately to clear his mind, to understand. This was the girl he had seen in the visiphone screen. Yes, the same clothes, the same face. But she wasn't the girl in the tavern. "'Conroe,' he blurted out plaintively. You, you must know Conroe. I've never heard of Conroe. But you must have. Last night, in that dive, dancing. Her jaw dropped as she stared at him in disgust. Then she gave the knife a flip into the desktop and sank down on her bed, her face relaxing. Go away, she said tiredly. That goddamn Frenchman's sense of humor. Go on, beat it. I'm not rooming with any hoppy, at least until he's off the stuff." "'You don't know Conroe?' The girl looked at him closely. "'Look, Jack,' she said with patient bitterness, "'I don't know who you are, and I don't know your pal Comstock, or whatever it is. And I sure as hell wasn't dancing anywhere last night. I was working in the tank last night, getting some looped-up hophead cooled off for the axe this morning. And it wasn't fun for either of us and you'll be down there yourself if you don't cool off. And you won't like it either. So go away. Don't bother me." Jeff sank down on the opposite bed, 
his head in his hands. "'You—you looked so much like her.' "'So I looked so much like her!' She spat out a filthy word and drew her legs up, glaring at him. Jeff reddened, his whole body aching. "'All right, I'm sorry. I got excited. I couldn't help it. And I can't leave here. I tried it a little while ago and ran into a couple of fists.' Blackie's lip curled. "'The guards don't like us down here. They don't like anything about us. They'll kill you if you give them half an excuse.' Jeff looked up at her. "'But why? I didn't do anything.' The girl laughed harshly. "'Do you think that makes any difference to them? Look, Jack, let's face it. You're in a prison, understand? They don't call it that, and there aren't any bars.' but you aren't going anywhere, and the boys in gray are here to see that you don't. And they hate us because we're not good enough for them, and we're in line for the kind of money they don't dare go after. You're here for one thing, to make money, big money, or to get your brains jolted loose and nothing else." She looked up at him, her eyes narrowing. "'Or are you?' Jeff shook his head miserably. "'No, nothing else. I'm waiting for testing. This other thing is an old fight, that's all. You wouldn't understand. You just look so much like the girl." He looked up at her, studying her face more closely. She wasn't as young as he had thought at first. There were little wrinkles around her eyes, a shade too much makeup showing where her mouth crinkled when she talked. Her lips were painted too full, and there was a tiredness in her eyes, a beaten, hunted look that she couldn't quite hide. She leaned back on the bed and even relaxation didn't erase the hardness. Only the jet-black hair and the smooth black eyebrows looked young and fresh. Jeff shook his head and kept staring at her. "'I don't get it,' he said helplessly. "'I was assigned to this room.' "'So was I,' the girl's eyes hardened. "'Are you one of the workers?' she sneered bitterly. You mean one of the experimental animals? That's right, the mercy men. Full of mercy, that's me!" She spat on the floor. But the mixed company. There was no humor in her laugh. What did you think? They'd have a separate boudoir for the ladies? How do they treat any kind of experimental animal? Get off it, Jack. They don't care what we do or how we live. All they want is good, healthy human livestock when they're ready for it. Nothing more. That means they have to feed us and bunk us down. Period. And if you've got any wise ideas—' Her eyes widened with a look of open viciousness, shocking in its intensity. Just try something. Just once. You'll find out a lot about Blackie in a hell of a rush. She rolled over contemptuously, turning her back to him. You'll find out I don't like loonies for roommates, for instance." Jeff lit a cigarette, his hands trembling. The room seemed to be spinning, and he felt his muscles sagging in pain and fatigue. He had counted so much on information from the girl. But incredible as the resemblance was, Blackie couldn't have been the girl he had seen in the tavern. If she had recognized him, he would have spotted it. She couldn't have hidden it completely. Suddenly he felt terribly alone, almost beaten, helpless to go on. Where could he go? What could he do? How could he follow a trail that led straight into stone walls? 
He leaned back on the bed and yielded to the fatigue that plagued him. His mind sank into a confusion of hopelessness. Maybe, he thought wearily, maybe that plaguing doubt that lay in the fringes of his mind was right. Maybe he'd never find Conroe. He sighed as the darkness of utter exhaustion closed in on him, and his head sank back to the pillow. He knew he was dreaming. Some tiny corner of his mind stood aside, prodding him, telling him he dare not sleep, that he must be up, moving, hunting, that the danger was too grave for sleep. But he slept, and the little corner of his mind prodded and cried out and watched. He was walking along a brook, a walk he had taken once before, so very many years ago. A cool breeze struck down from the meadow, rumpling his hair. He heard the tinkle of the water as it sparkled across a rock. And he was afraid, so desperately afraid. The voice in his mind screamed out to him at every footstep, until he faltered and slowed and stopped. "'Not here, Jeff, not here. Stop, stop now. If you go farther, you'll be dead.' Sweat broke out on his forehead. He tried to move forward, felt an iron grip on his legs. "'Stop, Jeff, stop! You'll die, Jeff!' An overpowering wave of fear swept over him, and he turned. He ran like the wind with the voice following him, crying out in his ear, following him on ghostly wings. In the dream he became a little boy again, running, screaming in fear. A man stood in his pathway, arms outstretched, and Jeff threw himself into his father's arms, sobbing as though his heart would break, clutching at him with incredible relief, burying his face in the strong, comforting chest. "'Oh, Daddy, Daddy, you're safe! You're here, Daddy!' He looked up at his father's smiling face, and he saw the strong, sensitive lines around the big man's mouth, the power and wisdom in the eyes. Nowhere else was there this sense of strength, of unlimited power, of complete comfort. He buried his face again in old Jacob Meyer's chest. A flood of deep peacefulness passed through his mind. "'Jeff! Jeff! Watch out!' He stiffened, his whole body going cold. The strong arms were no longer around him, and he was suddenly afraid again, afraid with a terror that bit deep into his mind. He looked up and screamed, a scream that echoed and re-echoed. It came again and again, a scream of pure terror. Because his father's face was no longer next to him. There was another face, hanging bodiless and luminous above him. It was chalk-white, a face of pure, ghoulish evil staring at him. It was Conroe's face. He screamed again, tried to cover his eyes, tried to shrink down into nothing. But the hideous, twisted face followed him. The horrible fear intensified, sweeping through him like a flame, twisting into fiery hate in his heart as he watched the evil, glowing face. "'He killed your father, Jeff. He butchered your father, shot him down like an animal in cold blood!' Jeff screamed and the evil face grinned and moved closer, until the rank breath was hot on Jeff's neck. "'You must kill him, Jeff. He killed your father.' "'But why? Why did he do it? Why? Why? Why?' There was no answer. The voice trailed off into horrible laughter. Quite suddenly the face was gone. In its place was a tiny, distant figure, 
running, running like the wind down the narrow, darkened hospital corridor. And Jeff was running, too, burning with hatred, fighting desperately to catch up with the fleeing figure to close the gap between them. The walls were of gray stone. Conroe was running swiftly, unhindered, but horrid objects swept out of the walls at Jeff. He tripped on a wet, slimy thing on the floor and fell on his face. He scrambled up again as the figure disappeared around a far corner. The walls were gray and wet around him. He reached the Y, waiting, panting, screaming out his hatred down the empty, re-echoing hallways. Then suddenly he glimpsed the figure and started running again, but they were no longer in the Hoffman Center. They were running down a hillside, a horrible, barren hillside, studded with long knives and spears and swords, shiny blades standing straight up from the ground, gleaming in the bluish light. Conroe was far ahead, moving nimbly through the gauntlet of swords. But Jeff couldn't follow his path, for new knives sprang up before him, cutting his ankles, ripping his clothes. He panted, near exhaustion, as the figure vanished in the distance. Sinking down to the ground, Jeff sobbed, his whole body shaking. And the voice screamed mockingly in his ear, "'You'll never get him, Jeff. No matter how hard you try, you'll never get him. Never, never, never.' "'But I've got to. I've got to. I've got to find him and kill him. Daddy told me to—' He woke with a jolt, his scream still echoing in the still room, sweat pouring from his forehead and body, soaking his clothes. He sat bolt upright. He searched for his watch, but couldn't find it. How long had he slept? His eyes shot to the opposite bed, standing empty, and he rolled out onto his feet. He had the horrible feeling that the world had passed him by, that he had missed something critical while he slept. He stared at his wrist. The watch was definitely gone. Then, with a curse, he crossed the room and ripped open Blackie's footlocker. Sure enough, the watch lay with a heap of gold jewelry on the dirty clothes pile. He stared at it as he restrapped it on his wrist. Then he walked into the lavatory, splashed cold water into his face, and tried to quell the fierce, painful throbbing in his head. The watch said eight-thirty. He had slept for five hours, five precise hours for Conroe to hide, cover his tracks, disappear deeper into this mire of human trash. Jeff stumbled to the door, glanced out to see two gray-clothed guards passing in the corridor. Quietly, he pulled the door shut. His stomach was screaming from hunger, and he searched the room restlessly. Finally, he unearthed a box of crackers and a quarter pound of cheese in the bottom of Blackie's locker. He ate ravenously and drank some water from the lavatory tap. Then he sank down on the edge of the bed. The dream again the same horrible, frightening, desperate dream, the dream that recurred and recurred, always different, yet always the same. The same face that had haunted him all his life, the face that had almost driven him insane that day, five years before, when he met it face to face for the first time, the face of the man he had hunted to the ends of the earth. But never had he caught the man, never had he seen him but for brief glimpses, Conroe had slipped from every trap before it was sprung. Yet finally he had become so desperate that he was forced to retreat down a one-way road that led to hellish death. Jeff shook his head hopelessly as he tried to piece together the situation. 
he was in a half-world of avaricious men and women out to sell themselves for incredible fees. It was a half-world that seemed to Jeff only slightly more insane than the warped, intense world of pressure and fear and insecurity that lay outside the Hoffman Center. And in this half-world were a doctor who knew Jeff was a fraud, a kleptomaniac girl who thought he was an addict, and somewhere the slender figure of the man he hunted. Again he walked to the door. After peering out cautiously, he started down the corridor. From the far end he heard a burst of laughter, the sound of many voices. The smell of coffee floated down the corridor to tantalize him. He followed the sounds and reached the large, long room that served as a lounge and library for the mercy men in his unit. The room was crowded. A dozen groups were huddled on the floor in a buzz of frantic excitement. The room was blue with cigarette smoke, and the lights glowed harshly from the walls. He saw the dice rolling in the centers of the groups, and he also saw half a dozen tables, crowded with bright-eyed people. He heard the riffle of playing cards and the harsh, tense laugh of a winner drawing in a pot. And then he spied the nasty Frenchman, his eyes bright with excitement, a cup of exceedingly black coffee in one hand and a pile of white paper tags in the other. He grinned at Jeff with undisguised malice and said, "'Come on in, wise guy. Things are just beginning to get hot.' Blinking, Jeff walked into the room. End of chapter 4